Cheers. Welcome, Welcome to, to Let's, Let's Have a Kiki. Kiki. This is a very special TIFF 2021 episode. Oh my gosh. Remember when it was hashtag TIFF19? <laughs> I know that that like that was two years ago and it's not that crazy, but it feels like it was literally a, a different lifetime. I can't hear you say something like hashtag TIFF19 without thinking of Jack from Will and Grace. <laughs> oh my God. Steak. Two K, two K, U K, or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, due to the global, you know, Panera, uh, we are <laughs> the global panini. We did not go to Canada this year, but we did get to watch a bunch of movies from the comfort of our couches, which does have its its benefits. I'm not gonna lie. It's certainly easier to watch more things. So it depends on what you're getting out of the festival. If you're trying to just see as much as you can, this is definitely the way to do it. I should say, first things first, shout out to our Patreon supporters. $5 a month gets you early access. $10 gets you access to our viewing parties. We're gonna try and think of some other fun new things, potentially like extended cuts or exclusive behind the scenes things. You tell us what would be exciting to you. Second thing second, shout out to our wine sponsor, Wink. Go to trywink.com slash moviebitches. You get $22 off your first month of wine. I'm flipping my hair even though you can't see it. I know, right? Third thing's third. Subscribe, share, whole. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Make sure to subscribe uh, wherever you listen to podcasts whenever we do release these because unfortunately they have been irregular in our releasing schedule. Then you'll get a notification that says, hey, guess what? They posted something for hey, first guess time what? in six months. They got it together. <laughs> Rate and review us <laughs> on iTunes if you can. And yeah. all of the above. So where do we want to start? Well, I think we could start with the movie we both watched first that we have differing opinions on. A movie oh called Mothering Sunday, directed by Eva Husson. Or Ava. <laughs> Either way... She's a fabulous director, I would say, because this movie was gorgeous and got really great performances. I know that you did not care for the back and forth sort of ambiguous timelines of where are we and what is happening. But I thought the performances and the look show that she is quite you know, proficient as what, at what she's doing. Interesting. And I would say that the production designer is quite proficient at what they are doing. And the director, I I don't know if I agree with you in terms of like storytelling and also in terms of like some filmmaking. There were a lot of shots and angles and things that just to me didn't scream, ooh, that's really quality filmmaking. But yes, it did look gorgeous. The costumes were gorgeous. So I don't know. Maybe it was the cinematographer that I didn't like. I'm not sure. Sure. I mean, Um, who's to say exactly? A lot of things fall on the director's shoulders, but... Um, I thought it was a real atmospheric, engrossing movie, even though on some level it was very boring. Obviously, I I didn't live through this, but I thought it captured the aftermath of World War One, that like deep, deep sadness of like an entire generation being lost really well. Yeah, that seemed to be oddly a theme of multiple movies this year at TIFF. (laughs) People are going through some shit. I guess. Yeah. Well, and I should say, the reason I think we both initially watched this was because Colin Firth was in it. He is not in it too much. And it was sort of a little weird experience because if this movie had been made even 20 years ago, he would have been playing the 
sexy uh, young right. man having the affair with our with our lead actress. Uh, yeah, the the young hung guy. Yeah, uh, he was he was a real Milton Berle. I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I know that Milton Berle apparently had a very uh, memorable, well endowed, memorable, yeah. memorable <laughs> member. But uh, apparently that is a fact that I know in my head for some reason. Uh, Josh O'Connor. I also love the term memorable member. That's definitely I'm into that, it. That's a keeper. Okay, good. I'm keeper. into it. Josh O'Connor. And Odessa Young are two leads. Uh, they are yeah. having a secret love affair. She's a maid. He's the only son that was not killed in the war of a very affluent family. And it's told in and out of her timeline. And I do right. think there could have been... You wouldn't have lost too much of the, let's say, mystique or ambiguous filmmaking if they had had title cards that said... Now it's 1934 or whatever might have been right. helpful. But I was so kind of into figuring out myself. Oh, her hair's shorter. Oh, that robe wouldn't be in the 20s. I don't know. I got into it. <laughs> I guess what's weird for me was that this movie is filmed as if it was like a biopic, but it's based on a person who doesn't exist. And yet they're treating it as if you know everything about this person's life. So at the very end, spoiler alert, I guess, I mean, we'll, it doesn't we, really matter. We can both agree the ending was its least successful component. Yes. But so at the very end, cuts to her as an old woman who's receiving her umpteenth award as a writer. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? But we never saw her write anything. We never saw any of this success. We never know who she is. You know, they treated it as if it was like Stephen King being like, oh, oh gosh, another award. Thanks. It means so much, you know? Well, um, I think it was more about the journey, right? She starts off as a orphaned maid that has no connections right. and really could have stayed a maid uh, her entire life and done nothing outside of the box. And it's her journey of sort of saying, I'm going to go do something with myself and choose my joy. And the whole middle section or middle timeline section of her with, I cannot pronounce his name. It's like S-O-P-E-D-I-R-I-S-U. Okay, Sope Deviso. Um, who shows up in another movie we'll talk about. I thought he was fantastic. So they have a very interesting, actually, you know, a, a, but you compare it a more um, give and take relationship than her and Josh Connor do. Times are changing, all of that. So the ending just felt tacked on and not really flushed out where she's like, oh, <laughs> awards. Anyway, like it just didn't work tonally, but I wasn't mad about the journey of getting there, I guess. I guess. I think for you, you read into it a lot more. Like, you say that she made all of these decisions and whatever, and I feel like a lot of that was not in the film. I think you you connected those dots. And I guess there were dots for you to connect, so there's something there. Yeah. But for me, I felt like the filmmaking and the storytelling just kind of left me out to dry and to try and figure it out myself. Well, you often don't like films that are sort of let you about nothing tangle in the wind and figure it out for yourself and i have to be that's in the right, true i have to be in the right mood and, and when i am i really enjoy that but can we talk about the hats and the seafoam oh green sunglasses because oh those sunglasses oh, oh that fabulous bunt oh the costumes oh. were so fab her hair was yes. very aspirational it was mermaid <laughs> hair i loved it i thought that the that the handling of, the, I mean, it's excessive nudity. And I thought it was yes. handled in a way, 
I mean, it, that's the only way to say it. It was excessive, but I thought it was excessive, handled. but also casual. It was it not was like so nudity. casual, and I thought that was obvious that, to me that a woman had directed it. It was not objectifying her, even though right. she is fully nude for most of the movie. And not I, him really either. You no. know, like that was it, it was just nudity because it was like, well, they fucked and now they're hanging out and they're not like going to have put on yes. you know a bra while she's sitting in bed. Like, I appreciate that. Well, and I, I appreciated that she was a woman who was so kind of just OK with her sexuality. There wasn't this whole, oh, I'm bad or I'm having an affair. or Oh, I shouldn't be doing this. That wasn't present. There's talk of contraception, which was um, new right. for the time. So I just I thought yes, there was a lot of cut. things there was a lot of things inserted into this that if you kind of went with it you could go on gone on this adventure with her. So I, I liked it a lot. I wouldn't say it was amazing or perfect or anything, but I enjoyed it. I get that, and I I will say I mean I I did not like this movie, but I did like a lot of parts about it, and I will a, a huge shout out to Sandy Powell, and now that's the costume designer, and I'm looking at it, and all of this ah! makes sense. Because she did Cinderella, she did the young Victoria, she did Carol. Oh yeah, it's all it's all coming together. Because this did have um, a kind of far from heaven Carol Douglas Sirk esque yes. look to it. Um, yes, sort of that high color contrast going on. She also did the favorite, which then the Olivia Coleman ness of it all comes together too. Right. Who... Oh, and she did the Glorias. Oh, I mean, great love. Bravo, Sandy Powell. Yeah, right? The Wolf of Wall Street, Hugo. My goodness. This is pretty fabulous. So uh, in 2020, she received her 15th Oscar nomination and her seventh collaboration with Martin Scorsese for The Irishman. In 2019, Powell garnered her third dual nominations at the 91st Academy Awards for The Favorite and Mary Poppins Returns, making her the most nominated costume designer in Academy Awards history after Edith Head. I was going to say, except for Edith Head, because she had like 30 or something. (laughs) 25 something insane i think after walt disney edith head has the most oscar nominations or something insane i love that as she should but anyway so shout out to sandy powell and a shout out to helen scott who did the production design because i think those two pieces really like made the movie extra special oh yes all these above the line females were in for a treat i'm excited yes definitely Well, so speaking of uh, fabulous women filmmakers, I watched one called Petite Maman, which is the new film by Celine Sciamma, who directed Portrait of a Lady on Fire, amongst a a lot of others. But um, this is her new entrant, and I really loved this movie. Yeah. Um, I don't want to necessarily give too much away. Maybe I'll just read the, the... tagline you like the the synopsis that they gave okay and then i can talk about the aspects of it that i liked the synopsis is nelly has just lost her grandmother and is helping her parents clean out her mother's childhood home she explores the house and the surrounding woods one day she meets a girl her same age building a tree house that's not a very good synopsis but yeah um, the um on a whole i would say the synopsis were not great synopses yeah synopsis. uh well 
the the TIFF ones were awful in that they were 12 pages long. It was like, so here is long. the entire biography on Celine Shiama before we now say what led her to be inspired to create this film. Yeah. Then we'll talk about each person starring in the film. And then halfway through, you have to find the three sentences that describe what the film is about. Have yeah. fun. <laughs> You're like, what's happening? Just give me a little quick, uh, you know, quick uh, paragraph at the top and then if i'm intrigued i will read more thank you yeah so basically this movie is about family mother-daughter relationships and grandmother granddaughter you know like that kind of thing maternal relationships and yes maternal relationships and friendships between two girls that is like in a magical realism kind of vibe the i remember Um, the still i didn't get a chance to watch this one but the still reminded me kind of of moonrise kingdom like it had that kind of um lots of colors and foresty uh magicalness yeah it does have i mean i think it's a little bit more french than moonrise kingdom but yes it is it is very much that kind of similar vibe i mean obviously less wes andersony but i fully get that and i I don't know. It was just really heartfelt and touching and I cried and, you know, it was and it was short. It was like an hour and 25 minutes and it was just really nice. I love that. It was just really beautiful and and nice uh, piece of art, you know. Fantastic. I will put it on my list to catch up on. Yes. That sounds lovely. It was lovely. And also I realized I don't think you still have watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I, I have not. I, I really have to. But you have to go watch you Promising really Young do. Woman. You really uh, That is true. Okay. Well, I will do t- Promising Young Woman. We'll trade. If you <laughs> Good. Well, speaking of, this is a, a long a long walk for a transition, but speaking of Wes Anderson, should we talk about the electric life of Louis Wayne? You think that's a Wes Anderson style? No, it was a very creative and visual film. And also for some reason that is beyond my comprehension, it was in 4-3, which is also my issue with the Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. I love that. Uh, there's the uh, long walk. Brian and the I were similarly walk. confused as to the 4-3. It was uh, inexplicable. <laughs> inexplicable. It really bothered me, um, I have oh, to say. Yeah, because it's not like it was related to TV in no. any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And honestly, it's weird too. And I know that like they didn't, I don't think they produced this. It will be an Amazon Prime original that comes out November 5th, it says. Oh, okay. And so whenever it's like these streaming movies, originals that are in a weird aspect ratio, I'm like, what are you doing? Everyone yeah. is watching this on their flat screen TV that is a 16 by 9. Why Why are we doing it? It's not like The Lighthouse where it's like, oh, well, we used cameras from right. 19, you know, 12. And we, yes. that is that is what it was in. You know, it's not that. Right. And uh, it was it was very confusing, but the Electric Life of Louis Wayne, one of yeah. many Benedict Cumberbatch uh, movies that was at TIFF, the right. only one I watched, and it was a okay movie, I would say. It's about Louis Wayne, an eccentric who was living in the turn of the century in London, and I guess the sh- long and the short of it is. Through his artwork, uh, he popularized the idea of having cats as pets. Pretty cool. But also the pacing, I think, is the biggest issue with this one. Yes, I agree. It also seemed there was, uh, again, 
this seemed to be a theme this year. It was both with uh, Mothering Sunday, I felt, in a sense. Like I said, it felt like a, a biopic, even though it was a fictional person. But also with Electrical Life of Louis Wayne and with Benediction, which I will talk about later, it was this sense of like, oh, this filmmaker knows everything about Louis Wayne. Yeah, He knows all about him. But then the mistake is that he assumes that we also know all about him. And I did not. And as a filmmaker, he didn't tell me everything that I needed to know. He didn't lead me into a story where I'm like, oh, now I know about this person. Instead, I was like, well, now I have more questions than I I had going into this. That's always going to be issue for biopics. Uh, We'll talk about doing a documentary biopic versus doing a fictionalized biopic later, it's hard to fit it all in. And I think the filmmaker was trying more so to get a sense of Louis Wayne's mind, right? Not the accomplishments or the years that he was doing this or that. It was more just like, take a walk in his shoes. Right. It was like a beautiful mind, but with the cat guy. Right. For lack of a, like, you know, I mean, just to like put it blunt. (laughs) Yes. Um, But... I mean, I, did, I didn't dislike this movie. I just thought it, it, it ran a little long. I thought uh, Benedict uh-huh. Cumberbatch was great. I thought Claire Foy as his wife was really good. I don't know why Taika Waititi was in this movie for all of four seconds. Yeah. Really confused by that one. <laughs> he was he was like listed in the cast. And I was like, oh, yeah. great. I love, wait. And then he shows up, I don't know, an hour and a half into the movie for literally four seconds. I was like, okay. Yeah. On IMDb, he literally is the first build. What is happening? His last name starts with a W. It's not even alphabetical. Yeah, I, no, I have no idea. It's it's shockingly bizarre. But Wild. Um, yeah, he was hardly in it. Olivia Coleman also inexplicably oh, yes. the narrator. I think that could have been a way to liven this up and shorten this up. Because all of the stuff with her was funny and fun and sort of had this um, outsider's perspective. Uh, It seemed to be an omniscient person, like, talking from the future about the past. And I think... Right, it was almost like a storybook. Yeah, if they'd really played that up more, it could have been uh, framed in a way that was sort of more interesting and moved it along. Yeah, there was almost like a big fish-ness to it. Yeah. It had a fable, a fable vibe. Where it, it's like, this, exactly. person, this person is living outside of the norm of society. And isn't that fun? And, and I did find that fun. I just thought it was just a yes, little too long. Definitely. There was so much stuff where I was just like, well, that was nonsense. There was I like think it a was, 45 um, second scene that made no sense or had no connection to anything else that we had just watched. It was I, bizarre. I think often it was his mind, right? They were trying to do that sort of what's it like to be inside an artist's mind? And they were sure. trying to visualize that and that either kind of works for you or it doesn't. But yeah, the cats, perhaps. but there was cats. There were so many cats. There were cats. And so many cute pictures of cats. Yes. So if you like cats and you like hats, because oh boy, there was hats too. Hats watch and it. cats. Hats and cats. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, not- we'll, t- we'll talk about it um, as we go. But if your thumbnail had a hat in it, I probably watched your movie at TIFF. <laughs> Um, A couple interesting things I wanted to point out, but I do agree. I mean, I think, you know, if if it's on Amazon and it's free to watch, sure, you could watch it and, you know, you can go refill your drink or something while it's a weird, boring scene. A few interesting things that I found afterward was that apparently there's discussion about he never dated any of his drawings. So there's 
disagreements as to whether or not they got more and more kind of eccentric and crazy Mm -hmm. as he got older. Or if he was doing, there's arguments that he was doing both pretty much the whole time and just some were more commercial than others. Oh, I love than that. The, the, real, the real, like, you know, Lisa Frankie ones. Um, oh, yeah. There was some psychedelic cats and I was exactly excited about it. Yeah. No, there was a lot going for it. I think it just needed to be a little bit cleaned up and tighter and uh, more coherent. I, I think add but, a few more VO scenes, trim it, trim it by, you know, 10 minutes and you got it. And then also yeah, convert probably. it to 16 by 9 because what the fuck? Oh my god, exactly. <laughs> I think it's too late for that. Oh, definitely. <laughs> well, speaking of hats and period pieces, <laughs> there was a movie I watched called Maria Chap- Chapdelaine. I'm probably oh. butchering that, but there you go. It's set in sort of uh, rural Canada oh. in the 19-teens, I believe. I probably should have looked it up exactly, but it's based on a book that is, I guess, very uh, close to Canada's heart, or it's sort of like an Anne of Green Gables counterpart, I guess people were, were talking about. Okay. I don't see it. Uh, it seems way more adult than Anne of Green Gables. Pros and cons. Very long. But that seems to be the point. It's about a young girl named Maria who is the oldest daughter of this uh, family that lives in, I mean, when I say in the middle of nowhere, it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. They're farming Mm. the land and it's very difficult. And the winters and this, and it slows you to a pace of the life of living in a very rural part of Canada where they're chopping wood and watching them chop wood, dragging logs, and then they chop more wood. So it is sort of meditative in that way where you're like, I'm slowing down to a pace of pre-cell phones and, you know, just like living in the sticks. I kind of thought from the description and from the poster, which, by the way, had a hat on it, that it was going to be a little bit more far from the matting crowd. Like, oh, Mm. and she's got all of these suitors and she's sort of coming out in society and what's she going to do with her life? It was also very sad. Uh, Sad things happen constantly. (laughs) So that was a bummer. And at a certain point, because she has three suitors, but also like five brothers and there was, there was a point when they were all sitting around and I was like, I don't know who the hell anybody is. I am so <laughs> confused. Is that her brother or her lover? But eventually you figure it out. Uh, <laughs> oh and it did look gorgeous. There was a lot of linen aprons. I was excited about it. Oh. It's okay. It was. It's definitely like a movie you either turn off and hate because it's boring or you're like, ooh, look at the trees. And you have kind of a meditative little experience with Maria in the woods. Right. So. Sometimes those can be nice. I, I think particularly like if you're in a theater and you're you're literally away from any sort of distraction, yes. right? And so then you're just there in it and just like transported. So anyway, I would say if you like period pieces and sort of slow burn, you know, oh, and then she looked at him across the room for a while. Right. And then he right. looked at her for quite some time. But I wouldn't put it up there with, you know, Pride and Prejudice or anything because it's not sure. that. Very long. It was like two hours, 30, 40, something like that. Ooh. Okay. And French subtitles, wow. so oh. you're you're in for a workout. Uh, French Canadian. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Well, speaking of France and French, we Ooh. watched Julia, the Julia Child yeah. 
documentary, biopic. I think I just really prefer documentary biopics for for super famous people. I just think I do. Interesting. Well, so Julia, directed by Julie Cohen and Betsy West, who are two seemingly fabulous women, they also directed the RBG documentary that came out a a couple years ago. I really liked this. It was gorgeously shot, and I thought it was a really well-made documentary. Gorgeous. For me... The food porn... I mean, that's what oh you my mean, God. right? That's what you... Yes. If you make a Expect. Julia Child documentary and you don't have gorgeous food porn, you have you have missed the mark. <laughs> exactly. You're doing it wrong and I'm not interested. And luckily, they really took the care to, to make good... Like, well, it was I like, ooh, that food. I was looking at the credits. It had its own unit. Like, it was like the food unit. Oh, yeah. They took the time and the care to make sure that they had good-looking food. And I appreciate that. As a, a film and storytelling, it was a well-made documentary. Certainly not breaking any molds, you know, of, of documentary filmmaking. I don't know but it was how very much... Good. I don't know how much you can break the mold with a biopic about someone who's that famous. Like, I don't really know what you do with that. And so... Right. I thought for what it was, an informative you know, a trip through this fabulous cunt's life with food porn. Yeah. I really liked it. Yeah. I had a great time. Yes. I will say for me, it was a little similar to Julie and Julia. And I think perhaps like you could almost say that's how you break the mold is you oh, make a, I don't a, like that a biopic <laughs> slash documentary. Really? I do. I mean, I obviously like we talked about Julia that watching. Parts. Yes. Uh, all of the Julie parts. I I'm like, who cares? Fast forward. So for me, it's a movie that half works. Uh. She is annoying, yes. And I get that. I think the whole movie works. Um, In part, I think maybe because I I appreciate, like, the inspirational aspects of Julie and Julia, where she was like, it's following that story of someone who was inspired. It's also following someone who seems like a bitch and who, you know, um, was doing something for recognition and fame. Uh, So I think there's a lot. uh, People have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that. But um, I, I do think that the Meryl Streep parts of it are amazing. And it tells you a lot about her life, that this movie was um, redundant in telling some a lot about it. You know what I mean? I didn't learn terribly much more about Julia Child from this documentary than I did from that movie. I guess so. Again, I have not seen Julia Julia, I think, since it came out. I feel like a lot of her later life was not in Julia and Julia. Like, I yes, don't remember, that is true. like, That's fair. all of the Planned Parenthood and AIDS awareness stuff. Like, I don't know that being it. All of the, like, her breast cancer that she survived. Not darker things, but um, let's say more uh, taboo things. Uh, it's not quite the, quite the right word, but, you know, uh, they weren't. Julie right. and Julia's like, it was great. She's fun. Yay. You know. Well, also, I think Julie and Julia focuses on the cookbook. Right, because that's yes, yes. Julie's aspect into it. Whereas this movie goes so much farther beyond the cookbook. And I really appreciated that, right? Where yeah. it goes into the shows and, and explaining how oh, they I came to be, which it. was so fascinating. So organic yeah. that she just, you know, happened upon this. And I think I, I, this gave me more of a perspective of just how much she culturally shifted food in America. I, I Absolutely. didn't quite grasp that until I watched this documentary yeah. that like, People didn't know what asparagus was. 
You know, until (laughs) she told them. Food Network would not exist if it weren't for Julia Child, period. Exactly. She's just so fucking great. It just, across the board. I mean, I don't remember all of the stuff about her dad being so conservative and her sort of breaking free of, you know, she was expected to marry sort of a rich person in her same class. And she kind of used, uh, utilized World War II and getting a job and going off and adventuring around the world and... And all of that to her advantage to come become a more independent woman. Like it was so she right. is so In the fabulous. War, like that yeah, she was so fabulous. Really, really spectacular. So I would I, highly recommend this movie. I would highly recommend it. And particularly like if you haven't seen Julie and Julia or don't know a lot about Julie Child, I think you will be even more engaged with what's happening. I mean the fact that she worked yeah. through her nineties, like such a fabulous right. cunt. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, Julia Child is definitely the head chef of FCI. Oh, yes. <laughs> it was really well done, and, and I thought it was not too long. You know, they, they kept yeah. it pretty tight, and it I would, like I said, well. I would recommend it. So cheers to, cheers to Julia fucking Child. Love it. Cheers to Julia fucking Child. Yeah. So speaking of movies that I really liked, I watched one that I'm kind of obsessed with, actually. It was called Dug Dug. It's this Indian movie, and the director seemed pretty young, Ritwik Parikh. But he was so skilled. Like, honestly, a tour-level filmmaking for me, where he just Ooh. had so much personality. And, and like, the skill in, in the mood, the vibes, the the comedy the style the every like the production design was spectacular bright colors and like really electric and fun and i i just i'm obsessed with it like i want to see every other movie that he does because i'm very intrigued um his first film yeah it's his first like it's the only thing that he has credited on on imdb literally at all so uh, kind of crazy. But I, I mean, I hope that there's a lot more to come. He introduced it and talks about how basically it's like a religious satire of he was doing it out of like things that he sees in India of, you know, people and their rituals and they're praying to to all of these little idols or or certain things just even like on a, on a street side. But I think it, it applies to like Christianity and sainthood, you know, and like all of these like back in the day when saints were just sainted because they died in a weird way. Right. And so it's a story about a, a guy who it starts off and it's just, oh my God, Avril, the visuals are stunning. And I'm it's excited. this long, like 20 minute maybe intro scene where we're just following this drunk but fun guy, whatever, as he drunk drives home on his little, you know, tuk-tuk, his little, like, uh, scooter. I don't want to spoil too much, but it, it, there's a man who, who dies, and then his death kind of becomes this this magic, mystical, godlike thing that people turn into a, an ever bigger and bigger thing. It's like, if you pray to him, then you'll have success, and then everyone starts having success, and the whole town gets swept up in it. It's, like, very fun. It and sounds kind of like... Um... Being there vibes with Peter Sellers. I don't think I know. Chauncey Gardner. People start worshiping this man because he sort of is simplistic and just looks at life through his own lens. And so they think he is some kind, you know, everything he says is is 
is oh my god right. they, they read into it even though he's just a very simple man who would like to just kind of live his life in garden uh so it sounds like that kind of humor where people like like the emperor's new clothes oh my god yes. we all got you know wrapped up in this thing and very much very much but with such fun and i mean a lot of the movie are just montage um <laughs> love it and it's well done montage, but it's kind of the same point where it just keeps escalating and escalating and escalating. It's like, oh, you know, montage. Now here's a scene. Now that montage continues of the, the how things are getting even more crazy. And then here's another scene. And then now the mm. montage continues. So I was like, I could probably have trimmed those just in the sense of I got it. You know, I see where it's going. But sure. at the same time, that's kind of the point of the movie. So you know, you need both. And it, it was well done. And like the music was great. The style and everything looked really cool. Uh, the production design was spectacular. Like they built all of these crazy things. And like, it was really cool. I, I, I would highly recommend it. I'm excited. Speaking of drunk driving, should we talk about The Good House? <laughs> oh, oh, wait, you turned it off. So you didn't I know turned it, it off. <laughs> uh... Oh, no. <laughs> well... The Good House. Yeah. (laughs) The Good House, Sigourney Weaver's new movie. I mean, that's rude, but, you know, it's the reason we watched. Kevin Klein is in it. It's also the reason that we watched. uh, Perhaps the reason I watched the whole thing. The Good House is based on a book that seems like a book that your mom would recommend to you. Not in a shady way, but just sort of, um, uh, oh, isn't that nice kind of way. It's very clear that it's it's based on a book. There's parts that I liked about it. I thought Sigourney Weaver was really good and Kevin Klein is fun. It's weird that there, it opens, it's in a small New England, Massachusetts town and she's like, I'm Sigourney Weaver. And there's like no accent whatsoever and later i don't even know if you meet kevin klein when you turned it off uh, i did i did but then he's sort of doing an accent so then you're really thrown off and then sometimes some of the side characters are full-on like accented and other people are just talking normal it was strange uh sigourney weaver is a a real estate agent in the small new england town and she's going through a rough patch and her kids have decided in her eyes that she's an alcoholic and they give her an intervention. So she goes to rehab. She's on the mend, except that she now drinks alone at night because that's the only place where this small town doesn't judge her for drinking. And it's sort of her her journey through that. (laughs) And I did get to that point. Now, before we delve in deeper, I do want to say, so it's directed by... I think they're husband and wife, but whatever. They've hardly directed anything else. However, did you see what else he had directed? Sorority Boys. What? What? <laughs> Isn't that the most bizarre, random thing? What the fuck? <laughs> that is wild. Wild. Huh. <laughs> I don't quite know what to do with that information. I'll be honest. I know. If you have no uh, idea what we're talking about, we just recently retro-reviewed Sorority Boys, and you can check it out on YouTube. <laughs> this felt very much like not like a, f- a film festival movie. It felt like just just like a movie that would because it was um it was DreamWorks too, which I was like, oh hey, I haven't seen that logo in a while. Right. Um, 
It right? felt just like a movie you'd go and see with your mom on the weekend, you know, and be like, oh, let's go see that Sigourney Weaver movie where she like, it's how Stella got her groove back, except much sadder. You know, it's it's that. Um, it's, it was very normal. You know, like it was just like, I'm watching a movie. It, sure. it had no personality. You know, it was just like, they, sure. they got shots that were in focus and I wasn't continuitally confused. Yes. Although, can we please talk about... Um, that shot, that CGI'd Range Rover driving away at night. Oh yeah, that was um, that was so. Quite, so they quite didn't get all the coverage that they needed. I I don't even know. <laughs> Brian and I were like, "What is this?" I think that might be when we turned it off. We were like, it "I can't like, anymore. Let's go watch another one." <laughs> it looked like she was gonna, you know, take off all a Elliot and ET. You know, like it looked like she was gonna fly yes! away somehow, and that's oh my god, that's why it had to be CGI'd or something. I thought this movie was like fine, perfectly fine. Some sure. of it, it seemed like oh, I bet in the book that makes sense, or I bet in right. the book that's flushed out more, or we understand what the tone is supposed to be more, or or whatever, or they or the town is more of a character in the book, or or something. It felt like that. It felt like an Oprah's Book Club book that they made into a movie that was perfectly serviceable sure. and Kevin Klein was there sure. so I'm here for it and Sigourney Weaver was there so it's like you could watch it but you don't have to absolutely not yeah I, I turned it off and I, I feel like I didn't miss much so what did you switch to so actually yes good segue thank you we switched to a Chinese movie called are you lonesome tonight which was odd but in a fun way like i guess this felt a little bit more film festival e to me but so, it also had like a lot of references i'll say full disclosure i started uh-huh. this movie and turned oh it my off. God. not <laughs> oh, because no. it was bad i was i started it like oh maybe i have time to watch this and i watched uh probably like 30 or 35 minutes and then i was like i don't have time to finish this and I'm not like, oh my God, I have to see what happens. So, uh, some full disclosure, I saw the first 30 minutes. <laughs> so what did you think of the first 30 minutes? I thought it was uh, very visually engaging and uh, intriguing. It felt sort of neo-noir in a way. Uh, exactly. The lead character wasn't giving it to me. And so I think I was just like, uh, I kind of feel like I know where this is going. Uh, and so I, I wasn't as super, super engaged with that. But it did kind of bounce around, too, with, like, I'm surprised you liked it so much because it was like, is this a dream? Where are we? What time is this? What's happening? You know, back That's forth. true. That's true it did. Although I guess for me, it, it, it kind of kept me engaged and it all made sense in the end. It came together. You know what I mean? If that, it, like, there was a sure. point of why it was disjointed in a way that for me, like, Mothering Sunday did not. Sure. Well, so should we spoiler alert? Do you want to, if you think you know where it was going, do you want to tell me where you thought it was going? Well, he seemed like he was going to self destruct essentially and it was going to become, you know, a bigger issue with, I guess, her husband owed gangsters or bad men gambling debts or something like that. There's also the question of she doesn't seem that sad about it. So was she somehow at least, not, you know, relieved that he died or in some way was it connected? That's kind of my my thoughts of where it was going, that he was going to self-destruct by the end. Yeah, he doesn't self-destruct, which was nice. Like, it wasn't that dark. And spoiler alert, you know, he confesses his guilt of, oh, my God, I, I oh, murdered your husband. I'm sorry, we should say... The movie is about an air conditioner repairman who is distractedly yes. driving, hits a man, kills him, 
and hides the body and then sort of develops a relationship with the widow out of guilt and curiosity, I guess. Yeah, there's a detective is kind of obsessed with the case and there is trying to put it all together. So the repairman confesses to her and is like, I killed your husband. And she's like, he had two bullets in him. You did not kill him. And he's uh, like, oh. So he just ran him over because he was laying in the road dead already. Yeah, they threw him. They saw him coming and they threw him oh. into the road or something like that. I forget. But yes. So it was like not even his fault. It kind of had like a, a sort of silly-ish ending where it was like, you know, in the end, it was all okay. I mean, obviously the guy was dead, but he, that was the mob, you know. So it was, it was a little fever dreamy. It was a little, like you said, it was very neo-noir vibes yeah. and it, it was a little slow build, but I liked it. Yeah, overall. I did not turn it off because I was mad. I just didn't have the time, so. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was not a rage quit situation. <laughs> And to be fair, that wasn't even me with The Good House. It wasn't a rage quit. It was just like, a, well, I'd rather watch something that seems more interesting because April said and, this one didn't get much better. And like, uh, you know, at this point, we're like 12 movies in, five days have passed. You know, you're like, okay, I have yes, less, that's less true. time and patience for anything. Well, speaking of music, uh, Are You Lonesome Tonight? I don't know. I couldn't think of a better oh. one. We, <laughs> I like it. No, we'll go with we it. We watched a. We watched listening to Kenny G, the new movie um, by the new movie by Penny Lane, who directed our favorite documentary, Hail Satan. Yes. This was an interesting watch. So I don't know how much baggage you have with Kenny G. I hate. I his don't. Music. I I hate his well, music. It's like nails on a chalkboard. For me, a whatever you want to call it, an elitist jazz snob, I hate his music. It's literally <laughs> awful for me. So I was interested to watch this because, I, you know, I think it's easy to hate Kenny G, right? It's, oh, he's everyone right. has made fun of him. And so it's sort of like he's an easy target. And so I was interested to watch this to find out if there was something more deeper going on or, or something else. The conclusion I came to is I still hate Kenny G's music. I, and I, I guess I uh, understand Kenny G more. I don't know if I would say I like or dislike him. Um, he's sort right. of neutral, I guess. Well, <laughs> much like his music, it turns out he's pretty blah. Like he's just right? background, you know, um, which I thought was fascinating. I really liked this documentary because she introduces the film and she was like, basically, you know, people have very strong reactions to Kenny G when you bring it up. People like Avril will say, I hate him, you know. No, um, no, no. I want to make it clear. I don't hate him his as music. a person. Right. I, you I hate his music. really yes. hate his music. Well, and some people will say that. Some people will just go as far as to say that they hate him. But also, she was saying that, like, you know, when someone says that they hate a thing that someone else really likes... It, especially when it's so subjective as as art or music. You know, she's like, that That can be really tough and rude or whatever. You know, like yucking someone's yums. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. It, it might not be for you, but so many people go through so much effort to try and tear down Kenny G's music. At the same time, I feel like in watching this documentary where she talks to him about the music that he makes, uh -huh. you start to see how little substance there is to it. Oh boy. So so it's very interesting cuz she gets a lot of 
music historians, music critics, smooth jazz DJs from the 90s. Right. They did a really good job of, of sort of breaking down why I don't like his music. First of all, I think I don't particularly like the alto sax. The sound that comes out of that instrument is not my favorite sound. But also, they talk about how he creates his music in a vacuum. Jazz has, right. to me, always been this call and response, this one-upping each other, this group dynamic of we're sharing this improvisation together. Kenny G is very yeah. solo, alone. It's almost like watching someone just, you know, like when you're at a jazz a concert or, or a club or something and someone does a solo that's like too long and you're like oh, yep. let's get back to the beat that's his whole career it's just him risking, exactly it seems yep. and yep. so it was interesting when they when they sort of broke down the reasons they don't like it i was like oh now i can sort of articulate why i don't care for this it, it's it's fluff it's you know uh nice right. i guess you know it's just yes. it's there and it's all innocuous. Of that, yeah. It's completely innocuous. That whole section about his song called, was it just Going Home or Time to Go Home? Going Home. Isn't and that how, crazy? So in China, that song became the unofficial, you know, like whistle. It's time closing to. Shop. Yeah. Closing shop. It's time to go home. And they go into this whole detail about how the tones in the song are similar to the tones of the Chinese national anthem and right. it's all very like obey and just sort of go with the flow and it's it's innocuous it's like yeah <laughs> for the most well that people. was that was really interesting too one of the the jazz scholars was talking about the idea that like and, and this was for me I hate especially there's certain songs of his that I really hate and I realized it's because it's they're triggering for me where they were hold <laughs> music for so long and it yes, was like music on on the phone and or for like customer service or whatever and, and or, you're just like uh, it's it's corporate america trying to sue yeah. you and it makes me angry exactly. <laughs> yes but also i thought what was really fascinating for me the the line that stuck out the most of this entire documentary was she asks him what do you love about music oh my god and he doesn't have an answer he He's goes like uh, what do i love Huh. Well, you know, I just really love to see the practice that people have put into playing that instrument. Oh my God. That was so telling and wild. Right? He's just like, yeah. there's zero passion. It's, it's how do I conquer this thing? And they talk about his other exactly. hobbies and how he's yes, really, really, really good at golf. And, and he learned how Business to fly a plane. Investing. It's all yeah. very technical. It's all very yep. not the essence of jazz in my mind. And <laughs> yeah. so, and and it's almost at a certain point, they talk about how he did this, not a hologram, but like a virtual duet with Louis Armstrong. Oh my God. And how mad everyone was. And it's like, sure, I, I can't be like, you know, I'm not um, 17 anymore. I can't get like viscerally angry at someone for like whatever. He got the rights. He cleared it. I can't get mad about this sure. right now. But do I sure. absolutely never want to listen to it and wish it didn't exist? Sure. And then it's almost like he's negging them because he yeah. then talks about how he's going to do now a Stan Getz uh, duet. And, and oh my God. Uh, it's awful when he was in the studio and he's like, that one note is wrong. So I'm going to play right. that one note again and we're just going to Frankenstein it in and you won't even be able to tell. It's like the opposite of jazz to me. Like it's literally, how do I make this? Right. 
this this patchwork perfect version of something that's supposed to be in my mind so organic and from your soul and and he's doing the opposite honestly was crazy like i would be so fascinated to watch like the pixar movie soul next to listening to kenny g right (laughs) right (laughs) but like yeah also i thought it was so offensive to me like i agree you know if louis armstrong's family said fine who am i i don't you know like you know exactly did you hear about the anthony bourdain doc Not specifically, no. Okay, so in the Anthony Bourdain doc that just came out at like Tribeca or something like that, he had written an email, not like a suicide email, but like basically a goodbye email or whatever it was. Uh Uh-huh. Obviously, they didn't have him reading it because that's not, uh, you know, he didn't read it to anyone on camera. But instead, the documentarian had an artificial intelligence company (gasps) go through all of the footage that they have of him. And put together him reading out. And like, it's his own words, but he never spoke this aloud. No. And so a lot of people are are angry about it because it's just crossing the line. And that was really, for me, the Stan Getz stuff. Well, both. But the Stan Getz stuff was even worse, where it wasn't just, here's a a video clip of Louis Armstrong playing. This was, I'm taking Stan Getz, the notes that he has played in the past, and I'm going to make him posthumously play my music. It's Ugh. so offensive to me. So that's bad. Insane. Like, even that's if just someone, insane to just even even if there was a musician who I greatly admired and thought was amazing, did that, I would be like, Ugh. right? No, you know, yeah. It's it's bad enough to put fucking you know um, Princess Leia back in the new movies. You know what I mean? Oh god! Like, I yeah, really seriously. That stuff's bad enough, but to make someone a musician who's especially known for their soulful jazz, like personal music. Oh my god. Take all of their notes and make it your own music. Play your own music that they never agreed to play. In That's this, insane like, to me. That's clinical, you know, soulless yep. studio. Yep. Ugh, it was so Ooh, weird. Yeah. yeah. So that was just like, wow, the tone deaf, <laughs> pun intended, I guess. Um, wow. Well, it was the so hubris that he's that... he's gotten, I guess, at this oh, point. The the hubris is out of control. And now, because they did a whole section about how it was so cool and blasé to just dismiss him and be really, really rude. He was the butt of everyone's joke. And now he's turning it around right. and he's social media it up and it shows him having Zoom oh, meetings yeah. with like young people telling him about how to get likes. And it was just like, oh no, this is just another thing he's going to like accomplish to get the best at because he is, I don't exactly. know, a robot. It was so weird. Yes, he's so robotic. It was insane. It was fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. There was a, a whole bunch of music documentaries that came out this year. Yeah. Clive Davis was the was the, the Oh my god, line. he was the Lin Manuel Miranda of this, the, this uh, festival. Exactly. So it was really fascinating watching this next to we'll talk about them more in depth, but there was a Dion Warwick documentary, there was an Oscar Peterson documentary, yep. and there was an Alanis Morissette documentary. Watching Kenny G, who is a white man, navigate, let's, I mean, he didn't have to do anything, but, you know, quote unquote, navigate yeah. the music industry versus these people of color and women was yeah. fascinatingly sad. Uh, you know, there was literally nothing in the Kenny G doc was, that was like, then I had a sad time 
or a, a conflict or or something right. happened no. that made me grow or evolve it no. was it was nada i mean at a certain point in the documentary yeah. he's like oh and then here's my two sons and i was like oh what what's happened and also there's no mention of his his wives or it just felt so right. like he lived in a vacuum like uh it was just a very impersonal documentary in many ways but very personal yeah. it was strange yes you know, it's very... like the music there's just not a lot there I think he's a person who has a lot of work ethic, who yes. fell into something, who didn't have a lot of strife or conflict in his life, m- much because he had, you know, a lot of privilege in his life, and just basically has uh, lived like a nice life where he's he like talks yeah. about how he's just a really happy person, and I'm like, bravo for you, Kenny G. That's right. nice, you know. That's lovely. So it was very fascinating. It was very fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. Well, speaking well, of documentaries that are really well made about people you don't necessarily like versus people you love in a documentary that was okay. Should we talk about Dionne Warwick? <laughs> don't make me over. Sure. I think she is so incredibly fabulous. And this documentary yes. was fine. It was it was serviceable. You know, it was fine. This was a paint by numbers documentary. But she is so fabulous that like literally you could do the bare minimum and it would still be great because you just want to know and see and hear more about her and of her. I just was so enthralled. Maybe in some ways that's nice, right? Like that the documentary doesn't need to do much, shouldn't do much. It should just let her shine. I don't know. I think there's a middle ground where, you know, the graphics or like the weird, it starts and it's her sitting in a theater was it the apollo or was it just a theater anyway watching, watching clear, clearly this nothing documentary. no but like clearly she's watching <laughs> nothing and and they're saying okay now act excited now smile it, i don't know why it starts weird... with like a sizzle reel yeah it, it it starts and it feels like the end of a movie i'm like oh are we we're yeah. wrapping it up and i'm like but it just started yeah it's like this four minute introduction of the entire movie of like, this is the rise and not fall, but like whatever of Dion Warwick. And you're like, okay, but was that the documentary? Is this a short or is there more of a movie to come? I'm confused. Very that. She is so engaging and fabulous that it carries the whole thing. And there was some pretty fabulous little little mini sections that I love. Like there's a whole point when she goes to Europe and she's touring all around and she's in France. And she meets up with Marlena Dietrich, who is like, oh, my oh God. darling, this is like she comes and lights her show for her. It goes through her closet and yeah. is like, none of this is appropriate. We have to get you all couture and is like her little I, I mentor for a period of time. And I was like, this is everything. Everything. I mean, I can't even imagine just Marlena Dietrich being like, oh, no, no, we go shopping. We go to all of the all of the uh, the designers. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. that's like and then they showed this fashion show, basically, of all of her then fabulous outfits where it was like, oh, from that point caftan. on, she caftan. was always wearing couture. Caftan. Yeah. Couture caftan. Was... Caftan. Oh. <laughs> so I would say you could definitely watch it. And it talks about, you know, the strife that she went through being a black woman in the music industry slash, you know, black people thought she was selling out and being too white and vice versa. And she sort of had to ride this line. All oh my God, the stuff. bit with um, Snoop. Oh my God, I was cackling. I was cackling. cackling. I mean, I don't even know if we need to spoil it, but basically Snoop Dogg. No, Dog, you should watch it and enjoy it, it for yourself. But Snoop yeah. Dogg is one of the talking heads. And most of the movie, you're like, 
okay, sh- sh- sure, he- maybe he's a fan. And then it is revealed why he's in the documentary, and it is everything. Yeah, that um, was, I was like, why is he here? Yeah, it was and- like, you know, Clive, it was like Clive Davis, like her aunt, you know, other uh, performers, Gladys Knight, and then Snoop Dogg, and you're like, okay, sh- sure. Oh, sure. He, I guess he was available. Well, why not? Yeah, yeah. I would say worth a watch. It's It doesn't break the mold in any way, but if you wanted to know more about how fabulous Dionne Warwick is, then you can watch it. Absolutely. Speaking of, again, documentaries that perhaps aren't breaking the mold in any way, but are about an interesting subject matter. I watched the Oscar Peterson documentary, Oscar Peterson, Black and White. This felt very, you watched it in class. Here's a, Mm. uh, you know, there was some fun stuff where they, they brought in a bunch of jazz musicians onto this, you know, bare lighted set and they jammed uh, together and played his music as like a tribute to him. And they used that as the, part of the soundtrack throughout and then those people who were performing then got to just gush about Oscar Peterson and how fabulous he was which is the case because he's absolutely fabulous but it was very paint by numbers it was not particularly um different in any way but if you like again jazz it was very interesting you know watching the Oscar Peterson doc next to again the Kenny G doc where he had to, you know, tour the South and all of the segregation and all of this right. st- strife he had to go through. And yet he uh, prevailed and grew and his music got better uh, and all of that. So that was in the Dan Warwick doc, too, was like her, you know, them talking about her going through the South and, you know, going to a cafe and getting kicked out and yelled at. Like, oh, my oh, God. Terrible when stories. she was like... I mean, this isn't You can shove it up your ass. But when she told that waitress, you could shove it up your ass. I was like, yes. Yes. But um, one of the really interesting parts about the Oscar Peterson doc was his relationship with Norman Grants, who started jazz at the Philharmonic. He started that. And... Uh, He was also Oscar Peterson's manager and and a bunch of other musicians' managers. And uh, he was white, but he was always standing up for them in all these situations. So if they were touring or whatever and they were like, oh, you can't use the bathroom, he would basically be like, I rented this fucking venue for tonight i own this place he can use whatever bathroom he wants like he was really strong where they they couldn't be because because right. of the situation racism. and uh, because of racism you know because of, of how it was and so there was a lot of interesting stuff with that i mean now i almost want to watch a whole documentary about norman gantz because um there was sure. a lot of really cool stories about that and the fact that he started jazz at the philharmonic was so fascinating they toured with ella fitzgerald and and everybody okay. so it's definitely worth a watch but fully paint by number again nothing new here and it did get a little repetitive with its praise i agree oscar peterson is probably the greatest jazz pianist of all time but they they said it a a few times you know a a few times (laughs) and i was like no i know i'm already i agree i'm here i I, i'm watching the doc i mean but he deserves praise so uh, why not uh but the the other thing that i thought was really good for me about this doc was it really broke down his music it was less about here's his life he grew up here and blah 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 there was a bit of that but it really focused on his style and and he talked about how well he would play this kind of way with that person but he oh he would never play that kind of way with this person and and broke down the intricacies of his playing uh, the processes, mm. which I really like. So that was also like the opposite of Kenny G. <laughs> 
Right, right. <laughs> um, where he's, you know, he like lives his music and it's just, it's, it's oozing out of every pore of his body and he... You know, oh, what do you love about music? And he's going, this, that, the other. Oh, my God, I can't live without it. And this person and that jazz musician, you know, and, and he's so passionate about it. And they did have a lot of interviews with him. He has since passed, but old interviews with him sure. before he, he died. Uh, so, you know, it's worth a watch. It was, it, was, it was good. So to round out our Canadian musicians documentaries, uh, <laughs> I also watched the documentary Jagged about Alanis Morissette. This is a really interesting one because I watched this movie and then do you know about the sort of controversy going on around it no so i watched this movie not knowing anything then i looked it up and alanis morissette has come out and sort of oh yes not yes she said that she doesn't agree with it or she doesn't want to back it in any way right it's yeah she sort of said basically it's it's kind of like a vague quote that everyone keeps reusing which is her saying this isn't the story Mm. i agreed to tell which is really interesting because i watched this not knowing that at all and i left the movie with such incredible joy and empathy and and passion for Alanis Morissette. Like, I was like, oh "Oh my God, she seems like the most amazing fucking person who, yes, went through a lot of shit, but is working through it and is finding the light and was so incredibly ahead of her time and broke the mold and like did all these things. Like I left it, she's the coolest fucking person ever. And so when I read about that article about her saying, this isn't the story I want to tell, like, yes, there's a lot of very deeply personal traumatic things that she shares, not in great detail. And so if she was uncomfortable with that being shared, you know, that's unfortunate. But for me watching it, right. I, my like my heart grew three sizes for her. I was just like, oh my God, I, I love you so much. And I left it with... I mean, maybe this is my little 11-year-old self that was listening to Jagged Little Pill and was, like, obsessed and was like, she's my hero, yes, you ought to know, you know? And so it was a really (laughs) weird experience because then I read that and went, oh, no, I'm so sad that she feels like she was taken advantage of in some way. Again, the quote is very vague. It feels like she maybe revealed too much, perhaps, and is uncomfortable with with that. And that's just my guess. And, of course, I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable, but not that she's listening to this, but if she only knew how much I... (laughs) truly like loved her by the end of this documentary um so there's that would you say that she ought to know she ought to know (laughs) well and and (laughs) so uh, i I forget her name i should look it up but a woman directed it and she introduced it she did that she was like because you ought to know that i'm head over heels like she did a whole and it's ironic that i got to like she did a whole cute little like intro that was like she's like i apologize for how dumb this is but i love lance morissette so much and again she was so many young girls hero and anthem cries and all of this stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I would say watch it because I loved it. But also there's like this weird sort of ickiness going on behind the scenes. So I don't know how to feel about it other than that I love Alanis Morissette. And I, I, I hope for all of the best for her. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's interesting. I mean, I guess like you said, if it's especially if it's just such a big quote, it's hard to tell. But I would think that if the movie makes everyone watching it come out and and have both one increased empathy for her and her struggles and two an increased love for her and what she's created uh, then I think that that's nice yeah so and and again to round out the conversation about Kenny G and the difference between being a woman in the industry and being a man in the industry it's harrowing uh that's all I'll say yikes so uh if you like Alaris Morissette 
I would say watch it because she's fucking fabulous. And thus concludes our music documentary section of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, it's so interesting that sort of the best documentary was about the least interesting person or the most interesting person. Kenny G being the person I'm talking about. She was really skilled at taking a different approach. It wasn't just a, this is the life story of Kenny G. It was exploratory. It was trying to get to the bottom of this question of why do so many people hate his music and so many people seemingly love it because he's sold so many albums, you know? Right. Uh, You know, so that I think was what, what made that one so fascinating and yeah. and then it turns out he's a fascinating r- robot human being well um, you speaking know. of robots <laughs> should we talk about i'm Ooh, your man yeah i'm gonna say it i think i'm your man was my favorite movie i saw at the festival i think me too yeah well <laughs> maybe maybe doug doug but yeah right. but but overall and in terms of like the most commercial and whatever i Loved this movie. Right? So it's directed by Maria Schrader. Uh, It's a German film starring Maren Eggert and Dan Stevens. Which was kind of a random one, right? Well... Yes. Well, we'll get there. So so the plot is, briefly, Maren Eggert is a scientist who, to get funding or for reasons, is compelled to be part of this experiment where she will date a humanoid, seemingly, you can't tell the difference, robot who was made for her. And right. what happens when when that happens, basically, is, is the plot. Why I say it's sort of not too random that Dan Stevens is in it is because the other movie where I thought Dan Stevens was his best is a movie called The Guest, where he also is giving this very robotic, oddly funny, yet dark performance. And so I'm like, maybe this is Dan Stevens' niche. He just plays robots. And he's just the most amazing person at playing robots. (laughs) I love that. He was in Beauty and the Beast. He was the beast! Ah! Oh my god, that's right! Oh my god, that's right. Yeah. Well, obviously he looks better here. Yeah. (laughs) No, Um, so what, what I found really fascinating about this movie was that it kind of is made like a rom-com oh yeah in in the sense of like it it takes so many of those tropes you know it starts off and it's like oh he's this robot and she's reluctant and doesn't want him to be there but they're forced to be together so now we'll see their love blossom and then it is it turns out that it's a lot deeper than that and it's a study on humanity and loneliness and emotions and connections and partnerships and you know like relationships and what makes them valuable you know it's really it was this about quest for it all like i left yeah. the movie i'm gonna sound so kind of like bourgeois and this whatever but like this was a movie that i was like oh they're gonna remake this in america and it's gonna be awful <laughs> i mean like, I, I literally thought this... the same thing i was like oh we'll see who remakes this one like force right? majeure right they remade that and it was yeah. just not as good every bit of subtlety and nuance will be lost and it will be not, you know, it's just, sadly, it's true. It's the perfect example of like, oh, this movie got it. It got it all. It captured every emotion and, but didn't lay it out for you. It wasn't, you know, the closest I could say is like, it it reminded me a lot of Her, the Uh Spike Jones movie. uh Uh-huh, yes. Uh, You know, where it's 
it's all about, you know, technology and love and what's real and relationships right. and it's funny, but it's also kind of sad and, and it captured it all. So, you know, maybe if Spike Jones wants to remake this movie, I would be more inclined to. <laughs> I mean, told that I story, would say though. this. He did. And I would say this was more successful for me than her, even though I did like her. There was just something about this where it really like you wanted to root for them to fall in love. And perhaps it's because he's just a person, you know, like, I mean, he, he's a quote well, robot that looks exactly like a it's human interesting. Being. So she is such a compelling character and such a fully yes. rounded female character, which is very yes. rare. And so she simultaneously absolutely would love to be the princess who swept off her feet and falls in love with her perfect robot boyfriend and also fully realizes that it will collapse society at the same time because everyone will just be addicted yeah. to falling in love with their perfect robot and not talk to each other like humans. Exactly. And, so and having everything was... that they ever want and exactly. whatever. Yeah. So there was something so amazing that they, they juggled both of those things simultaneously and yes. didn't and you didn't leave the movie being unsatisfied or feel like Oh, they went that way with it, or oh, they went this way with it. Right. Oh, it was so no, good. No, it was so skillfully done. I'm your man. Yeah. I loved it. Probably no, I think yeah. it's my favorite. My favorite movie that we saw or that I saw. Oh, and I loved. I, I, I loved I, the score too. Yes, it nailed everything. I would also say it was my favorite of everything that I watched at the festival. So go out and watch I'm Your Man, and we didn't really spoil anything because it's just about everything. It is. It's just about everything. I like that. I am going to talk about Silent Night, which stars Roman Griffin Davis, who was Jojo Rabbit. Oh, the little kid. So Silent Night is a movie that I liked, but was very much the wrong time in the world to be watching it. So I do not want to spoil it because it is an interesting turn of tone. The cast is fantastic. Keira Knightley, Matthew Good, Lucy Punch uh, shows up, my favorite. Ooh. And uh, Sope Durisu, who was in Mothering Sunday. He's really fantastic. I keep spotting him in things and uh, I like him. Kirby Howell Baptiste uh, shows up. She's, what would you know her from? She was in Killing Eve, which you didn't watch. She was in The Good Place. She was the um, Australian oh. girlfriend. Uh, oh, yeah. I love her. Yeah, she's great. So, th- so the cast is fantastic. And the movie's not bad, but it was so incredibly bleak and depressing and mm. prescient that I-, I was very upset by the end, which is perhaps the point. But I've already been pretty upset these days just on my own. So <laughs> I don't know. Like, it was almost too much. Like, I had to kind of forget it. Like, I had to be like, okay, I experienced that. It's over. <laughs> Got you. Is it, like, cathartic or no. not really? No. Okay. And I don't yeah. think it quite... So it's it's billed as a black comedy, and there right. are parts that are funny, and the cast is very funny, but it wasn't balanced enough for me, particularly with the subject matter, which I won't get into, that I could have a moment of levity and laugh about what was happening. And it didn't go into the surreal and the absurd, like a Bunuel movie where they're taking down the bourgeois with how ridiculous everything is. So it kind of landed in the middle for me. I think it's worth a watch and it's sort of a movie you're either gonna like love or hate, or maybe like me, you'll just be like, I watched it and and now it's it's gone from my memory banks. Okay. But I will say that Roman Griffin Davis is fantastic. And oh, his mom directed it, which is great. Oh, wow. And his two brothers, who are twins, were in it. 
So it was oh. a family affair. You know, I, I, what can I say? Yeah. Oh, I will say, <laughs> I, for whatever reason, I'm usually pretty good about this, but I had to turn on the subtitles. Oh. I could not. Because of the British of, accents or just because yeah. it was a lot of mumbling? Both. And I'm okay. really, I'm really not that person. So I don't know if it was, I was having a day or what was going on, but I was like, huh? <laughs> Particularly okay, at the beginning of the movie, it's all very what's really going on here. And it, I felt like I had to really engage to be like, what? Mm. So you you could definitely watch it, but it is dark. Okay. Yeah, that was, I was intrigued. And I mean, I love Kieran Lee and the cast in, uh, overall sounds fantastic. But I also don't know if I need to be even more depressed these days. Yeah, if you're in a vulnerable, if you're in a vulnerable <laughs> place, uh, don't watch it. Oh, it also has... Annabelle Wallace in it, who we uncovered the mystery. She's uh, starring in Malignant and can't act. But she was great in this. So maybe it was on purpose. Uh, So maybe she can act or... Oh, no, she she can. But maybe... She was purposefully directed to be bad and malignant. We'll, we'll, we won't, we'll never know, but um, maybe, maybe okay. with more research, we'll get to the bottom of it. Okay, great. I guess, speaking of bad, and, and, and maybe this is rude, but um, I watched one that I did rage quit, I turned off, called Violet, which was written and directed by Justine Bateman and stars okay. Olivia Munn. Oh, boy. Okay. So <laughs> this is an indie festival movie if I've ever seen one. It is not good. I'm so sorry. I think its intentions are lovely. Um, You know, it's it's about a woman in the film industry who is, you know, she realizes that her life and that her, the way that she works and, and acts and everything that she does is based off of the patriarchy and fear and you know self-doubt and self-loathing and all of those things sounds like um it was like a very personal and cathartic experience for the filmmakers that perhaps was absolutely engaging for the audience well part of the issue is the filmmaking, rather than, than tell the story in a more subtle way, literally hits you over the head with it. The story is intercut in a nauseating mix with um, like found footage, like, uh, you know, montage stuff. So like they kept using, this is so bizarre, but like, you remember the intro titles to True Blood? Yes. <laughs> and you know that fox that like decomposes and is eaten by... Um, the stop animation. Or the or the the, um, the time lapse, time lapse with the, the time maggots lapse, yeah. like eating that yeah, yeah, fox. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. They used that exact footage. No. Which also I realized I recently watched adaptation, and there's like that whole little thing <gasps> way, in it where there's like how uh-huh. fucking good is adaptation? Oh, do you it's, not love it's that movie? good. I didn't love it, but I did like a lot about it. And I, I mean Meryl Streep. Maybe we and do him, that's... a retro review because I fucking love that movie. <laughs> Okay, I mean, I'm on board. I could certainly talk about it, and it certainly is valid, and there was a lot that I liked about it. But there were yeah. just things, I think, personally that I didn't care for. Sure. Anyway, it was, in in adaptation, there's, like, that whole little montage of, like, the, the you know, evolution type yeah, thing, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 the whole, the Lucy well, uh, so, montage. 
Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. But so they used that same fox decomposing. So this is like the third time I've seen it now. What is happening? Why would you pick that? Right? I'm like, what's going on? And they kept using it. She kept using it multiple times as like a cutaway of like any time that there was, you know, like self-doubt. Is the metaphor that she's being eaten alive by the business or that the fox who is the patriarchy is finally getting decomposed? No, I think it's just... Supposed to be disturbing visuals of like, yeah, self doubt okay. of like, so oh we're god, not reading I'm, too much into it, this. Then okay, it was pretty on the nose, and that was what was so frustrating. So not only is it constantly cutting whenever she has like self doubt questions, it cuts to visuals like that. It also has like um, cursive handwriting oh, that god. is written on the screen that will be like, why am I so stupid? I'm a loser. Or like, not like I hate myself in a Bridget Jones sort of way. No, it's just like her thoughts of self-doubt and hatred written Aww. on the screen. And then as if those two weren't enough to convince you that she hated herself, there's a voice and I don't know why there's a voiceover, not by her or a woman, but by Justin Thoreau <laughs> that expresses her inner <laughs> thoughts. What? Of I'm a loser. Why do I hate myself? Why why what? am I such a and I was just like, like Well I guess it, it was makes so sense. much I guess it makes sense that it's a man, right? Because she's the patriarchy and sure. whatever. But Justin Thoreau is a odd choice, but that's that's okay, sure. Uh. Yeah, yeah. So I I think I made it through maybe six minutes, and I because wow. also like the actual cinematography filmmaking was not very good. It was very budget, like iPhoney, okay. you know, not well, color graded like even. Maybe hopefully she worked through some stuff and yes, um, it was cathartic experience for her. I would that's all I can yeah. for. All I can hope for. I'm looking at the IMDb right now because I, I didn't watch enough of it to get there. But also, it turns out that Luke Bracey, who remember him from... Um, from Remember best, Me. Longest, best of Me. The longest best of me. Give me your heart, literally. <laughs> whatever the fuck. Yes. Movie. Yes. He's apparently in it, but I did not get to him. Oh, um, okay. Like, you got a lot from that first six minutes. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, because there was so much being thrown at you. And I just had to be like, nope, this is not for me. This is not subtle. This is not nuanced. This is a a bit infuriating. But I do hope that it was cathartic for her. And again, the subject matter is valid and important. I just don't think that this is the best way to tell it. Well, speaking of working through some therapy sessions, I watched uh, Biba, this uh, documentary portrait female directed um directing herself in this documentary self-portrait that is very vulnerable and authentic but also definitely feels like she needed to make this you know she needed Mm. to express uh what was going on the prose it's short it's 79 minutes so it's a breeze there was enough the editing was was very good because there would be these sort of long monologues or poetry and and the visuals, the mm. editing kept it going. There was enough interesting visuals going on that you were engaged with what was happening. Um, and so basically sure. it's about uh, this woman, Biba, who's half uh, Dominican, half Venezuelan, and looking at past generational trauma and 
family dynamics and working through being part of two minority cultures at once and how that affects how you're walking through society, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. It's shot yeah. on 16 millimeters, so it has a look oh. and a vibe. It definitely felt like something I would have watched in art school, you know, a thesis right. project about this is this is who I am, you know, that kind of thing. It was perfectly lovely is the wrong word. It's not <laughs> something new. Like if I hadn't gone to art school and seeing this kind of stuff, this might be groundbreaking for for other people. But right. this felt like, oh, I've seen this kind of thing. It's but and yet, I, you know, you are very engaged. So uh, middling, you know, if if this okay. story connects with you, or if you have something personal that you connect with 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 um, heritage and being of multiple races and all of that, like I, I think you will really connect with her. And I enjoyed experiencing you know, all that she was presenting in front of us. But the visuals were nice. So I liked it. It wasn't groundbreaking, but it was still good. Yes, exactly. Oh boy. Okay. So the next one that I'm going to talk about was called Benediction. I don't, I don't know how I feel about this one because, oh boy. Long, So, okay. Uh, I was going to watch it. Long, two hours and 17 minutes. Long. Yeah. I had already put yeah. that time into Maria's Champlaine or or words that sound like that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Champlain yeah. or whatever, yeah. Benediction suffered from the same biopic issues for me that Louis Wayne and in some ways Mothering Sunday did, where it was like, you know so much more than I do, and yet you assume that I know that rather than telling me as a filmmaker. So um, I don't I don't really know. All I know was Benediction was like a period piece gay movie. That was the so what is Benediction? Correct. About? So Benediction is a biopic directed by Terence Davies and written by Terence Davies about the English poet, writer, and soldier Siegfried Sassoon. Okay. He apparently was a renowned poet and a homosexual. Um, although <laughs> the way that you said I, well, that I almost said so and a fabulous. faggot, but I didn't know if I should. <laughs> renowned poet and uh, homosexual. Sexual. <laughs> Oh boy. Okay. So first off, costumes, production design, excellent. Film work, not great. Acting, good. <laughs> Characters and story, bad. Oh, okay. um, I don't think that any character in this movie is really um, endearing, likable. Oh. There was one that we hardly get introduced to and then he dies. Um, oh no. So, yeah. So, but but in the same time, so okay. So so Siegfried Sassoon, he goes to war in World War One. It's very bleak, right? Lots of death, and there's a lot of archival war footage that is very oh. bleak and oh. very graphic. That seems to be, at least as far as I can tell, seems to be an obsession that he had as a writer throughout his life afterward. Writing about the war, unclear. Writing about the war. Okay. That is unclear. I don't know if it's just that Terrence Davies really identified with those poems as a metaphor for being gay but unable to fully accept it and and so constantly being at war with himself, at war with society where it was illegal. I don't know. I don't know if he wrote about other things. Every time that he had the writing, it's also weird. He's a writer, right? And a poet. And we never see him write a single thing. (laughs) So the opposite of Claudette. <laughs> yeah. But we do hear it a lot. We hear his work 
And it's always over like footage, like archival footage of war, typically, mm. or cutaway scenes. It's never over like something that's actually related to his personal life. Okay. So it gets confusing. It's like, what are you trying to tell me? I mean, I think you nailed we it. Do follow... Oh, I'm at war with myself and society and my sexuality and war, you know. Sure, it's just not very well done then, but you know, okay. whatever. But so a good chunk of it is kind of him with two different lovers. One is which this like real dark and, and cutting, cunty gay. Oh, cutting in, you a, know, and it's... Um, in a cutting you down kind of way. Exactly. Yes, they're just very haughty and like the social elite and they're just tearing everyone down as the intellectual gaze, which was kind of fun. You know, I was going to say, is it kind of fun? (laughs) It it, it was kind of fun. It's just his partner was so vile and gross that you like weren't into it. And you're like, I don't want you to be with him because he's gross and dark and not fun. You know, um, was it sexy at least or no? Not really. There was Fun. one scene of like a like a gay sex scene where that the 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 partner he's a singer songwriter who's like playing at the piano and singing a silly song that everyone likes, and then basically just literally leaves the guy that he was dating and hooks up with the main Sassoon Siegfried Sassoon guy. Oh, okay. And just like bye, bitch. And then the guy shows up in the morning to them still in bed, and the guy is like, "You can just leave your keys on the floor." Oh, no. So, like, cold, right? Yeah, And yeah. that was where it was just, like... And then, a shocker, he repeats the same behavior with with Siegfried. He has another romance with, like, this real kind of flamboyantly fabulous musician-y type guy as well. And you're just, like, very gays and cabaret-y and whatever. And do you remember I talked to you about um, that awful show that I saw in <laughs> on Broadway called The Inheritance Play? Yeah, or do, yeah, it was yeah. just called inheritance. It was kind of like that, where it was like gays talking about being gay, but in a way that is um, so out of touch or so dated, it and it also wasn't, um, you couldn't watch it and go, "Oh, well, this was a different time." It was more like from a modern perspective, looking back, but it just didn't work. Exactly. I don't know. It just didn't click. It didn't click. And, and part of that was that it was jumping again all over the place. You were, you were here, and then all of a sudden he was now dating this other guy, but they were breaking up and they'd been together for three years. And you're like, well, wait, how did that happen? Now he's dating this woman and he has a child? I'm so confused. They didn't tie it all together. The chronology of it was was not very good. It's not bad. It's like, like, there's a lot of good there. There's like, visually, it was it was interesting and fun and the costumes were great. It's a fun time to represent visually. So I think that helps. It wasn't very successful and I think it could have been a lot more successful. It could have been told in 20 minutes less and in a more coherent fashion. I wish that someone had taken a, an extra pass at it, you know, for both the writing perspective and editing or filmmaking yeah. perspectives. Oh, well, bummer. It sounds like it could have been like a, a Merchant Ivory kind of... That's what I kind of thought it was based on the thumbnail and the description. But I guess I would say right. go watch go watch Maurice instead. There's a lot that you could watch. And I wouldn't say don't watch this. It's just not as successful as I wish it, it could have been. Well, there you go. So another movie that I watched was called Nobody Has to Know, which takes place on a Scottish island and or rural scotland i'm forgetting at the moment no i think it was an island anyway right this one sounded fascinating yeah i mean the main reason i watched it was 
Scotland and there was a hat in the thumbnail. Um, what can I say? I'm a sucker. <laughs> it was an interesting movie. It was very slow and methodical uh, and you didn't quite know where it was going and it grew on me the more I thought about it later. And I won't get into too many spoilers, but basically there's this Belgian uh, man who I think he also um, wrote and directed it. So... I should have looked up his name, but I would probably butcher it, and I'm sorry. So anyway, he is living in this Scottish town, and he has a stroke and has amnesia. doesn't remember who he is, and there's another woman in town, and they uh, were having an affair, and he doesn't remember, but she is the uh, daughter of the local preacher, I suppose, or priest. I- I'm not good with that kind of thing. Um, the local, religious figure. The local religious a uh, sermon giver is her father. <laughs> and so there's all this small town, religious guilt, everyone's in your business stuff going on. It's not too heavy, but it's just sort of there in the background. And it's uh, them kind of coming together and uh, navigating what was really going on and what he's going to remember and what he's not going to remember. And it was just a very uh, nice portrait of this specific town, time, place, it's present day. Um, really good acting. Mm. It's definitely slow and methodical and some people might not like this movie, but I found it to be interesting. And like I said, the more I kind of reflected on it by the end, it in a way had some stuff going on, like I'm your man, where it was like kind of about everything. And it was mostly successful in just this overarching, like, ah, what was it about? It was about life, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that kind of right, thing. right. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I don't want to say too much because if you know what's going on the whole time, you'll be even less interested in it. So I would say if that intrigues you at all, you could go ahead and watch it. Okay, cool. The last movie we both watched and I personally really loved, it was called One Second from China. Yes, One Second. I really, really liked it. We'll talk about, I don't know if you also know about the sort of controversy surrounding this movie at all oh no not not necessarily bad or incriminating or anything so this movie just to give you perspective was in the berlin film festival in 2019 and four days before it premiered it got pulled and there was all this speculation they said oh uh, we had post-production issues and all this stuff but the general consensus is that china censored it and made them sort of edit it down and I don't know if we want to necessarily spoil the ending, but to me, the end end feels very tacked on. China's not that bad. We got better. Um, to me, you sort of wonder, well, what did they take out? What could this have been? I, I really like this movie, but like, could this have been a fucking masterpiece? Or right. what could have been and what's missing? It, it kind of just makes you go, oh, I... Uh, I want to see what it was, you know, the real thing. And and the China's official statement is like, oh, only a few minutes were cut or something like that. So it's all a little, mm. who knows, who knows. But One Second is basically about the love of cinema and how community brings people together despite yeah. terrible, uh, oppressive circumstances. So it takes place during the Cultural Revolution, which was like between 1966 through 76, something like that. Did you know about any of this? I kind of had to look it up later. I sound so fancy, but I did look it up later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I gathered most of that, but I did not specifically know. Um, Chairman Mao had uh, loosened the reins, let's say, and they were getting more westernized and sort of capitalistic and all that stuff. And suddenly he was like, oh, wait, I'm losing power. And also, mm. obviously, I'm um, 
sort of glossing over subtleties, but he then implemented all of these extreme regulations to like basically cleanse and re-communize, if that's a word, (laughs) China. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's when they were talking about, oh, you're from this unit, you're from that unit. People were not allowed to like travel and they had to, you know, do a job they didn't necessarily want to do. And it was very restrictive. So that is sort of the overview of the movie, but really it's about movies. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's about movies. It's about the love of film. It felt very just like... Um, Didn't it feel so, so much know. kind of like Cinema Paradiso? Yes, there's like that nostalgia. I mean, I know obviously it's nostalgia movies. Nostalgia for physical film. Like there was a nostalgia sure. for literal film and projectors and splicing and uh, basically yeah. just pre-digital filmmaking. It was a complete love letter to that. and But, but also, also about humanity and cruelty and propaganda oh and boy. all yeah. of that underneath it, you know? Yes. It's, um, you know, cinema and movies are a tool uh, for good or for bad and sort of, you know, stewing in that. And what does that mean? But so, oh, so we haven't said it. it's directed by Yimu Zhang, prolific director. Yes. And raise the red lantern, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, exactly. The filmmaking, the cinematography, gorgeous. These shots are gorgeous of like these sand dunes and just the desolate. There's also almost like a Western vibe to it, you know, of like that kind of just like Wild West. Um, yeah, or like maybe the, the, is- sand. the isolation of. Yes, of being yes. a town in the um, middle of nowhere and outsiders coming in and all that stuff. All of that, exactly. But basically, he's been trying to find footage from this newsreel, propaganda newsreel, that apparently he got a letter that his daughter is in it. I guess we shouldn't spoil how much is happening. But basically, yes, he's traveling, not through his unit, his district, right, to see one second, uh, you know, the title, of footage of his daughter uh, that he has perhaps lost track of. I won't give away what exactly is going on. And he uh, right. befriends. I mean, it's a troubled relationship. He befriends a orphan girl. It, again, this movie is about everything. It's it's one of those, yeah. you know, it's it's got a lot of layers, subtlety, multiple things going on. The performances are amazing and fantastic. And yep. I thought it was like almost amazing because I could... I could at least kind of feel there was like things maybe left out or it didn't go as hard as it wanted to with certain things. Um, sure. But it's very good. It's very, very good. The fact that he was able to get that message through even, you know, restrained and even, you know, with one hand tied That's behind his back is fantastic. Yeah. So I would say I would recommend it. It was very good. Yes. But know that perhaps yeah. it could have been an absolute masterpiece. So where's the, I can't say his name and I won't try. Where's the insert director's name here cut? Yeah, exactly. Release the Zheng cut. There you go. Release the Zheng cut. I don't think that uh, China will be as yeah. susceptible to Twitter as yeah. DC Comics. Yeah. I, I'm not <laughs> holding out too much hope, but it was a, a beautiful movie you know, that was very well done. So I would recommend it. Yes, I would recommend it as well. And I loved the, you know, the live film. I mean, it wasn't live film editing, but you know what I mean, where you're like sitting there watching them splice film together and clean film, all sorts of stuff. It was, it was fun. Like, that's what I meant. Very nostalgic for. Exactly. A medium that I 
I even had very little to do with directly, but I did have some, you know, uh, splicing of 16 millimeter in art in film school and stuff. So I was even like, oh, nostalgia. I never had to do that. I just worked with Avid, but (laughs) I can appreciate it still. Yes. Anyway, well, so that wraps up uh, the ones that we saw at TIFF. I I think we missed almost all of the award winning films. Did we really? (laughs) Silent, Silent Night did win an award. And um, there were a few others that did. But yeah, for the most part, I don't think we watched any of the, the award-winning mm. films. And, and I, I think sometimes the, the ones that did win the awards were easier to watch elsewhere because they're going to come out. But there was a lot of great movies that we saw. And I guess I would say go watch I'm Your Man and Julia. <gasps> yes. Those are my top, yes. my top two. I would say those two. I really loved Petite Maman and I loved Doug Doug. And I, I really liked One Second. I really, there was something magical about it. Oh, that, it was, it was, was very just, good. Oh, I'm just noticing that Dionne Warwick won a special tribute award. So good for her. Cheers. Well, cheers. Cheers to TIFF. Cheers to cinema and film and artistic creators and women directing. I saw, I wasn't yeah. even necessarily trying to do this, but I ended up seeing a lot of movies that were directed by women. So hooray. Yeah, hooray. I love that. I think they announced actually that this year there were more female directed films than male directed films. So look at that. (laughs) Two snaps and a hullabaloo. I don't know. Anyway, thanks for joining (laughs) us for TIFF 2021. And we'll see you, I don't know, in eight months when we release the next episode. Exactly. (laughs) We're going to try and do better. We promise. Cheers. Cheers.